Did you guess? know that the most popular non-chocolate candy is Skittles? Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Yes, sugar? I did. <laughs> because I, I buy so many. <laughs> Makes sense. I think we're talking about candy. I think it's candy yeah. or candy bar, you know, what your favorite candy or candy bar is. Okay, Matthew, we're ready. Yeah, yeah, I'll I'll go into it. Um, so there's <laughs> we this <ready>. Australian, <laughs> this Australian. I, calling it a candy bar is a little iffy because there's nothing else to it but chocolate and caramel. Um, but it's called a curly whirly. They're amazing. Um, I highly recommend you try them. Uh, my partner gets them for me uh, every Christmas as a pack of ten, uh, just so that I have some, and they last me maybe three days. So. A quick Google search says you can buy them on Amazon, but you'll also be advertised for hair product. Yeah, you can't it, like I thought that she to begin with. And, and this is a bit of a tangent, but I thought that she was doing this whole like she'd found like an international shipper that was getting them from Australia. And then I found out that were just on Amazon, but it's still a, a really nice gift. And I really appreciate it. <laughs> and it's made by Cadbury. Who knew? Yeah. Hmm. Who's next? I'll go. I don't really eat candy bars, so I'm going to go with the craziest one that I can come up with. And I'm going to tell you that Curly Whirly is a way better name, but it was what you would call it. That's it. That's all I got. <laughs> no additional information. They don't actually sell those very <laughs> I was going to ask, like, are they making those anymore? But I didn't want to call you out. <laughs> I, I got Probably. a report from a friend that there was a quick trip near Green Bay that actually had whatchamacallits and she bought eight because that's all they had. And mm -hmm. she put them in their, her freezer to try to pace herself. You can buy a whole, what does this say? It, it, there's one on Amazon that's 44 bucks for a pack of 36. That's so yes, they still on, make them. Yes, oh, they sorry. still make them. The discovery is part of the fun. Oh, sorry. <laughs> There's a who's it, what's it as well. I've never heard of that one. Me neither. <laughs> All right. I'm uh, one of, oh, I was going to say, I'm one of them that's like in the plain, plain Jane category and Snickers. It's just good. It's just, you know, just, hey, I'm going to have one of them quick and easy. Good to go. So that's me. What about you, Kelsey? That's a great question. As I'm like, yeah, I'm boring and I have food intolerances. But if historically, if I was going to risk having stomach pains, my great grandma used to have a Hershey's chocolate bar every single night before bed. And then my grandma did the same thing. And then my mother did the same thing. So I'm trying really hard to not follow the trends. But if I did, just a plain chocolate bar every night would be, I'm here for it. What about you, Anne? There, I think there's ones I don't care for, but I like I like coconut, so I like mound or was it? Oh, no, almond joys. joys. Yeah, mm -hmm. I'm singing the song to the thing in my head. <laughs> um, I love Take Five because I like the salty mm -hmm. caramel, but I'm like Tara too. I give me a Snickers. It's great. <laughs> These are reasons I don't keep these things in my house. <laughs> yeah, I I've been liking um, Twix as I get older. Like I like the crunch. I never liked it as a kid, you know. But um, yeah, or Snickers. I'm in the Snickers family too. So I love it. 
Um, So today on our Tech for Business podcast, uh, we started off talking about chocolate because we're talking about healthcare. (laughs) Uh, Kelsey, Tara, and myself are joined by Todd, our COO and CISO, Matthew, our GRC analyst, and Anne, our GRC specialist. Um, If you've listened to the podcast before, I'm sure you've heard us talk about healthcare and cybersecurity. So today we decided to dive right into best practices for healthcare. And I'd like to start off just about a little bit about maybe why we're talking about this and why we're focusing on healthcare and we're not focusing on on other industries, why this is so important here and today. Well, someone wants to dive into the weeds of that one. Matthew does. I think the reason it's come so high to the top of how we manage it and how we help our customers manage it is everything is digitized now and being able Mm -hmm. to protect it in all forms. It's not just about having a a file cabinet in the back of a clinic somewhere. It is who has access, how can you transport, how can you transmit, how, how can you effectively protect people's data and that's that's not anything new, but for a lot of, especially for long established entities that have healthcare or even new where it hasn't always been a requirement to manage it that way, it really is is uh, becoming much more significant. So what's what's happening in the healthcare industry? I mean, um, you know, you think about they have access to personal information and all the the HIPAA laws. So I would assume that they they have all of their stuff together and that um, they're doing a great job about being protected. But here we are today talking about it. So that's clearly not the case. So what is what is sort of putting these healthcare centers at risk? Yeah, I mean, I, the one thing that I'll add to it is. Um, Everybody's at risk. I, I, to your point, how you opened it up is why are we talking about healthcare itself is a great question, and there is really a good important reasons for it. But everybody is at risk. Healthcare is important because they do have very specific data, and it's very specific to individuals, so it's very identifiable. And no surprising, they have two acronyms for it: PHI and PII. One's healthcare information or health information, and the other one's identifiable information, both persons of themselves. And they have a lot of it. And I, I I think we've done this before on previous podcasts, but just for clarity's sakes, when you're talking healthcare, it's not just a hospital. It's not just a clinic. You're talking about eye care. Um, that can be your LASIK teams or it can be the clinic that's taking a look at your eye and helping you with glasses. It's uh, chiropractors. Senior living. Senior living is <laughs> a fantastic example. And so it crosses a lot more than most people would tend to think. And yet, every one of them still has the PII, the PHI. And so that's why it's a very important thing. Um, And it's also the reason why they're heavily under attack. I was looking for the statistic and I couldn't find it off the top of my head. So I'll take a look when Matthew starts talking here, but um, they are one of the most heavily attacked industries out there. And the reason is just that, right? There's a lot of information that they have. Exactly. Um, Todd, they they can go back and listen to our podcast on the, on the other reports that we've done this year, if they want, I suppose, but um, you, you're spot on. That's healthcare data is worth a lot. 
because while we think of it as the appointments that we go to and things like that, it includes so much personal data that it sells for a lot. And so higher profit for the people who are committing this crime is going to result in more attacks. Um, it's everyone who has patient data, whether they're storing it for someone else, whatever it is. It's also going to impact people who sign business associate agreements with these places. So if you're storing this data at all, you're impacted. So while there is a lot of it that is they are a high risk, high value client um, or a high risk, high value target, there's also the fact that the scope of who is considered the healthcare industry is really large. Um, so there's more attack surface, more likely to get pulled into it. As for um, why they're at risk as well, there's a number of things to go with that, but it's best to remember that not everyone is at the same point in their compliance journey, um, which is a phrasing that I've heard Anne use a lot and I've very much tried to take on board as helpful for me. <laughs> because uh, I started out um, with helping new doctors who were going into private practice with the software they were using. So because of that, that kind of guideline of there isn't anything in place, where can we start there? is a, a really nice place to begin in, lets you really focus on making sure you're meeting the guidelines you have to. Most organizations are not in that place. They've already got a ton of things in place. They've already got software they're using, hardware they're using. Sometimes it's hardware that they've had to reuse because of certain situations that mean it's maybe not as up to date as they would like it to be. Uh, all of these things increase the risk, but they also increase where you are in your HIPAA journey. So, Personally, I think the number one thing is just it's becoming a focus. Um, as uh, we go into in some of the other podcasts you can listen to, fines are increasing. Um, they're also seemingly on the rise in general for not meeting HIPAA guidelines. Um, so there's there's a real incentive to make sure you are meeting them. There's a real incentive to make sure that they're being met within the scope of how you can meet them and without jumping too much into the next topic I want to go to, thinking about where your risks are. That, I mean, that kind of seems where we're going is, is <laughs> you know. Um, it's going to telegraph my play. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so are we, I, I believe we've, we've spoken about risk assessments previously on the podcast. Um, even if Probably. we haven't, I'll try not to go into it. If there is any desire for them, I can and will talk about them at length at the drop of a hat. Um, risk assessments are a great place to start and probably what I'd call the first best practice to dig into. Um, it's about knowing your environment top to bottom and knowing the environment of uh, knowing the current risk scenarios. So what is most affecting healthcare industry at the moment? Is it ransomware? Is it people falling for phishing scams? Is it credit uh, gift card scams? What is it that's impacting the business the most? How could your organization fall for that? What systems do you have in place that would stop that? And at what point do you worry about your system not being secure enough versus the potential loss you would uh, you would have if someone were able to get in through that system. Um, very roundabout explanation, 
Um, but a risk assessment is definitely the first place I would start. And the main reason for that is that it will give you the best overview with a security mindset of your environment. Yeah, I think you make an excellent point. Uh, you were, as you were talking through um, in the previous statement before we had the pause, you were getting into um, how everybody's at a different spot in their journey. And as you were going through it, it kind of triggered a memory for me, which is one of my neighbors, he lives a couple of houses away from me, recently opened up an oral um, surgery clinic. And so as he was doing that, he's he's now the the sole proprietor, he's responsible for everything. And so he's at the very beginning of this journey. And the question for him is, where do I start? Well, Matthew just laid it out. It is a risk assessment. There is another thing that you can kind of do, too. Um, for him, it was a little bit less concerning just due to the fact that he's such a small organization. But what is very, very important is when it comes to all security practices, as you start to get into the, the actual implementation of them, is you can't protect what you don't know. So you need to find out another assessment is what assets do you have? Is it your computers? Is it your applications? Et cetera, et cetera. If you can't figure out what all of those are, you stand no chance in protecting them. Uh, but the downside, of course, is that the bad guys can figure it out and they can figure it out very, very quickly. Exactly. Uh, just a quick tangent there. It is far easier to scout a network you're already inside um, than it is to try and figure out what you have. Um, because when you're looking for vulnerabilities versus looking for an explanation of what's in place, those two things are very different. <laughs> and if someone hasn't gone through and documented what they were doing to begin with, if someone hasn't been very clear about the purpose of each server you have on site, it's very easy to get lost as to what they're doing, especially um, as a conversation that happened previously goes. Uh, sometimes people are using joke names for their servers. Sometimes they're using uh, the planets, uh, the, the moons of Jupiter. Sometimes they're using Disney characters. Um, these are fun and definitely when you're connecting to them every day, it's, it's a nice little, it's just a, a sense of joy every now and again when the names pop up, but it doesn't help from a security standpoint to know what that server is doing. So risk assessments really help you get everything back together, especially if you've had multiple people build it out, whether you're contracting or you've had multiple internal IT staff, that risk assessment gives you not just a technical overview, but a business overview of what your attack vectors look like. Where are you most vulnerable? And then we move on to being able to talk about acceptable risk. So at what point are you saying, it is okay for us to not resolve this issue right now because we have protected it by doing X, Y, Z? I, I would add to that risk assessments are not only the best start, but they are so important that so many of the industries have built them into requirements annually for their their auditing and, and controls. Uh, there is a requirement to have a HIPAA security assessment, risk assessment annually yeah. as you mature through your, and that's that's really impressing upon everyone, the the not the severity, but the importance of of what you need to have and and how you need to be aware of of where your requirements are. Exactly. I, I like to think of it as well from the because uh, I, I tend to come at things from the technical side of things. So knowing where the network is and what it all looks like and what everything's doing is is huge. But when you come from it from the business side as well, 
what's the potential loss if something goes wrong here? And as such, are you spending enough money on your IT at the moment? Um, remembering that when you're putting this risk assessment together, the person who's putting it together may have the mindset I used to have, which is just, I'm putting together a technical analysis of the network and where I think the damage could be done the most. Well, that's great, but unless you can define what those potential damages are, from a business perspective, it just looks like a wish list. Um, by monetizing it, and you can find those numbers online, you can find them in the uh, the reports that we've gone over on these podcasts. We cover a lot of those numbers, um, but the ICCC has information. Um, Verizon puts out a yearly cybersecurity report, which has a lot in there as well. And reviewing those and getting those numbers is part of that review. It's part of that risk assessment. It because should be anyway. It should be, definitely. <laughs> because this isn't just, like I, like I said, a technical review. It is a business review that you should be taking to leadership of the organization, to the board if there is one. You want buy-in from the whole team. Um, there's there's so much that goes into it and it is a big undertaking, but it's a big undertaking because it is a business evaluation and a technical evaluation of your current environment. So yeah. right out the gate, just a huge first best practice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think I, I I got a little one in there too, but 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 one of the things I was going to do is you're kind of trying to pivot off of that a little bit. When I said in specifically, you should include that. The reason why I said that is because we're going to have people all over the map when it comes to maturity. And if you get stuck or you're overly concerned of, well, how am I going to figure out what that that assessment of value is? Um, it shouldn't be the last step that you take and you stop and go, okay, that's it. I can't go any further because I don't know the answer to this question. The reason why I bring that up is because a lot, we, we do a lot of assessments for a lot of companies, a lot of industries, et cetera. And as you're going through that, I'll use the FFIEC, which is is not healthcare specific, it's, it's finance specific. But that particular assessment actually considers the monetary assessment as part of a middle area and intermediate. So you, you actually have to take a while to get there. So the reason why I'm mentioning that is because I think the things that we were talking about at the beginning are the information. And this is really where the risk for healthcare comes into play specifically is not only do you need to know where, what assets you have on the network, the, the data itself is the, the specific asset that we're talking about. In that scenario, you need to know what your data is. Where do you save it? Is it in your location? Is it physical files? If so, what do you do? Do you lock the doors? Do you lock it in a file cabinet? Do you have people sign in when they come in? Do you have video cameras up? Physical, right? Is it something that you outsource to a cloud? Um, this is a little bit more of mitigating. To how do you mitigate the risk? If it's in a cloud, somebody else is if theoretically protecting it, but then how do you protect it, which we'll get into in a little bit. Um, but then the next step is once I understand what kind of data I have, it's paper, it's data on a local storage, it's in the cloud, then you get to decide how important it is. And this is where Matthew is getting at what is the value of that? If I lost it, this would be the assessment you could easily do no matter your maturity is. If I lost that information, how much does that hurt? And you could probably put a pretty quick number to that most organizations and go, and eh, not so much. I could probably get away with probably not even needing that. So then the risk is very, very small or that would put me out of business. That And that value is, we'll say my business is worth a million dollars. That's a million dollar risk. Okay. We can now move forward on the rest of the risk assessment. Um, I'm going to stay on data just real briefly before I, I be quiet for a little while again is as you figured out what it is and how valuable it is, one of the other things you absolutely have to do, and this is core to HIPAA, 
is you need to define how long you're going to retain that data. And once you've gotten to the point that you're not going to, um, and I'll let Ann and Matthew tell you all what that number is, what are you gonna do with it? And the answer is you better get rid of it. Cause if your policy says I'm not gonna stick it around, you better not have it. Yeah. Um, have a policy and follow it to the letter. Exactly. There's a quick thing you mentioned there with the length of time data should be kept for. Um, the specifics of this I won't go into, but suffice it to say that the, the HIPAA documentation doesn't explicitly give a number, um, but the consequences of the HIPAA documentation does give a number. Um, so that number is seven years. Um, I lot. think it's in case anybody's yeah. curious. That's a lot. <laughs> it is. I think it's for a full six years, I think is the exact language. So we just say seven as a way of, of having that cutoff. Um, and specifically, it's about how when was that information last shared? So it's not about when did the last patient vision visit occur? It's when was that information last shared? And that's what you've got to track. So keeping everything to do with that, which most EHR softwares will do they'll track this is when it was last accessed this is when it was lost an email was last sent out from it etc keeping the whole patient file includes that information in a lot of cases if you're sending email via, if you're sending HIPAA data via email you better be tracking those emails for seven years and if that if an individual who sends HIPAA data via email leaves you've got to keep those emails for those full seven years so that you can track what was sent out um so I'll stop there because we can <laughs> dig into this so deeply. It's one of my favorite topics on here. Um, <laughs> but seven years, try and keep all your, don't try, keep all your data that includes patient information for seven years. Yeah, one other thing that I'll throw on there, and I'm sorry if I interrupted you, Anne, is not only do you need to, to make sure that you're doing that, to me, there's kind of like the subset of that, and it's actually more important that I'm making it when I call it a subset, is you need to monitor those files too, right? So you'd actually enable to say, when was the last time I shared it? You actually have to know what that is. So you need to monitor the access of the file, the sharing of the file, et cetera. But even on a deeper level on that is, hypothetically, if you're doing that and a bad actor was actually trying to mine your data, you would see that that potentially could be right this very minute. And if you weren't expecting that, you should have the monitoring tools be able to alert your team, whether it's you specifically, your security team or a partner, that would be also incredibly important. And I'm sorry if I interrupted, but go ahead, Ed. So having the, uh, this goes back to the policy part, Having the ability to, you get to make your own rules within the the confines of the the requirement. Um, things I I would almost recommend is is moving the data to a specific spot with that that control to, I, I say a, a C drive on a computer that is absolutely not true. But if if this is a, a record that was accessed now, but it is likely they will not need it anymore. Move it to that that pile or or controlled area. Just just little things that work for you and your your operations in general to make it easier for yourself long term. That may not look like the the example I described, but just trying to not have to revisit things um, in six years not seven yeah. <laughs> but yes <laughs> um and you you make a, a a really good point about something that uh we saw recently that i want to touch on here as briefly as i can um 
it's it's very easy to think of these things as static, right? We have to keep this for seven years. Okay, that's cool. But as Anne said, it's not we have to keep a full active backup of this for seven years. You can archive things, back up the archive and keep that. It doesn't have to be, you obviously need to make it accessible, right? So you don't just do one backup that you then put in a lockbox and hope it survives. Have a couple backups, <laughs> be thorough. Um, but the goal here is to ensure that data is accessible if necessary. It's not that it has to be part of your full active system all the time. Otherwise, things start ballooning, and I'm sure we've all seen, uh, especially patient data, balloon in size significantly. Um, you can pivot with what you're doing with something. Um, if you uh, just as a quick example that came to mind, uh, if you are a PCI customer who does take credit card information but doesn't need a credit card reader and the credit card reader is sent to you, you can send that back and not have to follow all of the PCI requirements that would be included if you did have a PCI uh, reader on site. Those pivots can save you a lot of time and money uh, and make things easier. So work within the confines of what those rules are to give yourself the ability to pivot as well. Um, I'm going to transition back a little bit. I know we were talking about, you know, what is it? Why is it important, et cetera? And then we started to get into what, what should we be doing about it? And we did talk very heavily about figuring out what you're going to protect, how important that is with our risk assessments and, and whatnot. And now what are you actually going to do about it? And, and I, I want to bring this up now specifically because there are two things that I tell companies, if you do nothing else, do this. And I think should we probably even have a podcast on it. If you do nothing else, do this. And those two things are you absolutely need to multi-factor pretty much every damn thing on the face of the planet. And you should also have endpoint detection and response. And I know I have podcasts on both of those topics too. If you do absolutely nothing else, and again, one, two, three, those podcasts exist. If you want to go get them, go get them. Um, you should be looking at MFA. You should look at EDR. The other stuff is fantastic too, but you do need to do these things in every healthcare. I don't care if you're senior living and you think that this is a, a burden of entry that I cannot achieve. That is incorrect. You absolutely can achieve it. Um, we can get into the profitability of senior living or something along those lines later. But if you look at it, the typical resistance we see is that the nurses have to um, dispense medicines and so on and so forth, and therefore it's inconvenient. Great, I understand it's inconvenience, but there are tools that allow you to overcome that. If you go into the clinic, you go into the, the hospital, those doctors are extremely expensive and they don't want to type in their 15 character password. And you know what? They don't but they still have multi-factor on their devices, you can get there from here. It does exist and it's incredibly frictionless. So I will not accept your answer. Oh, sorry. I got, I'll get off my soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> I would say the the most important thing to do right now is be aware and educated on your requirements. That doesn't mean that you have to read. I mean, I love to do stuff like that and read thick manuals looking for all the detail. But in every requirement, whether that's HIPAA, FDIC, financial, there is always a summary document of what's important, what to protect. And obviously that moves right in back into the risk assessment. But ignorance is neither bliss nor an acceptable answer to not following. And it's it it is difficult to to say well i i just didn't know but it, those days are kind of going the wayside it there it's not 
acceptable to say you've had a clinic for 10 years or even two days and you don't know that you have HIPAA requirements. We find an easy way to do that and communicate to all those affected, which would be all of your staff, what what is specific and and measurable to them and why, to Todd's point, do you think a, a doctor will type in a 15-character password? No, but there is a way. But stressing the importance and the implications of not is is just as important. Yeah. Um, two things briefly, as brief as I can be. I know I keep saying that today, but <laughs> that's how I'm feeling. Um, firstly, uh, I think we'll try and have the the summary of the security rule, the HIPAA security rule, in the uh, the brief. So if you're listening. Now it should be there for you. Um, and two, there is so much that goes into what the best practices are. And we've really touched on, I would say, probably two of them in this. The main one being that risk assessment followed by the MFA. And the reason we focused on the risk assessment is that as you start doing it, as you get through it, you'll see all of the rest of these items come up because a risk assessment is exactly the reason the rest of these items exist. Some of them may not be relevant to you. So reading through that security rule and trying to implement everything without knowing what you have is basically blindly running around the house, seeing if all the doors and windows are locked and then forgetting you have a spare room. Um, it's very likely you're going to miss something significant. So start with that risk assessment. If you aren't thinking about MFA already, you 100% need to be and speaking to someone about getting it implemented in whatever way can be done to streamline the business. But a risk assessment leads to everything else. And as you do the risk assessment, as you read the summary, you'll see how you can implement and update what's in place to make it more secure and to give yourself a better chance of, of not being uh, breached or impacted by some of these events you're hearing about in the news. Yeah, and as I think we're probably closing out the podcast at this point, too. So I, I had a couple things that I'd add to that is as Matthew's talking about that, ultimately what that leads to from my perspective is um, this also tallies off of what Anne was saying is you can't say I didn't know, therefore I'm fine. That is not OK. That will not work for you. So you do your assessment. You start to figure out all the things that you uh, you potentially have risks around. You need to build a plan. That's a long term process. Right. And then after you've started to build that out, we refer to this as a security uh, or a cybersecurity incident response plan. You should have a process that tests the plan. The only way to get better is to test it, right? You build the plan, now you need to test it. Um, and then the last item that I'll throw on here is we threw a lot at you in 30 minutes. I know that happens. Um, if it doesn't make sense, there's people out there to help. If it's us, if it's others, go find the help that you need or read through the documentations. If you're like Anne, you, you love that anyway, so go do that too. That's always an option. I want to back Anne up here. I love reading that documentation as well. It's <laughs> it's such a fun time. And I'm not joking. Well, it sounds like a lot of reading. So not for me. I'd probably reach out to, to CIT or like you just said, anybody. There are people out there who can help you. Um, any last closing thoughts? This topic is so big and it might be something we need to come back to in the future. Anything else you want to share? Uh, yeah, just, yes, it's a big undertaking. It is not expected you'll get this done in a week. It's not expected you'll get it done in 12 hours. Give yourself time, come up with a plan, cut it up into bite-sized chunks, work with other people on your team. 
if you need someone to guide, we can help with that. Others can help with that. But don't think of it as a big thing that needs to be done. Break it down into small chunks that are possible. It It is possible to get through it in six months to a year. It really is. But don't give yourself a timeline until you've read through it all. You've started to break it down like that. Take a breath. You can get there. I love it. That's that's kind of a beautiful way to end. Um, thank you, Todd, Matthew, and Anne for joining us today. If you have questions, you need help, you want to know more about risk assessments, or you need help testing, please reach out to CIT um, at info at cit-net.com or head out to our website, cit-net.com slash podcast, and join us next week with an all-new episode.